You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a podcast where we discuss the ideas of philosophy, ethics, religion, history, and culture. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. Right, you ready? Mm-hmm. As I'll ever be. So, a lot of people say that philosophy started in Greece, and they're right. But the thing that I think a lot of people don't kind of remember or really acknowledge about the the whole history and development of philosophy is that Plato and Aristotle were partly lost for several centuries. So yeah, a few early Christians and Neoplatonists, mostly in Greece, managed to preserve some of what Plato had written. But from 600 AD to 1100 AD, uh, the only reading of Aristotle was a translation of the Organon, which was done by Boethius. She translated it to Latin. So, few remnants of the ancient world, like Byzantium, were reading Plato, but nobody was reading Aristotle. That is until the stuff you alluded to in the last podcast, where the Islamic world suddenly found Aristotle, and he became kind of the centerpiece of Western philosophy. So, through that process that we talked about last time, like people like Al-Kindi kind of finding these old books and having circles translate them, Aristotle took the four and Plato took a back seat. And I guess we could talk about that because I know you you kind of think that Plato has done dirty and Plato should have been the one to prop up Christianity, not yeah. Aristotle. I've always wondered why he was like overlooked. Or, well, not overlooked because we still obviously have him in high regard. But mm. like the foundations of a lot of Western, well, foundations of Western philosophy focus on Aristotle's works. I've always thought, why? Yeah. I guess it's because he, he, he was a bit more systematic in his approach to writing things down and documenting. And he spoke more of the his system of thought, you know, as a as a a thing to do rather than here are my ideas. But I still, you know, hold a grudge. Yeah, I I get why, because I, I think part of the reason is because the dialogue form, like you said, is a bit too vague with Plato, because mm. it's basically more of a story, and I don't think that translated very well into what Christian monks and theologians were trying to do. But also because I think it's just a lack of availability, and I mean, until Constantinople was sacked in 1453, the Christians only really... Put, had like wide access to one book, which is the Timaeus. Because everybody thinks it's the Republic that Plato's holding in the School of Athens picture. It's actually the Timaeus. Mm. But yeah, so for various reasons, the Christians were mainly reading Aristotle. So I wrote a couple of essays. And to be honest, uh, there's another thing I wrote as well, which might be relevant. So rather than just spamming the, the description with like those of essays, I'll just put a link to where we put all our essays. Um, I'll stick yours up there as well, Joe, if you want it up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. Want, let, let people yeah. read my terrible writing. That's fine. Cool, cool. So yeah, you, you can find that if you want like our references and stuff for some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Also, if you want to just copy it word for word and submit it, <laughs> you have my permission. Because <laughs> I could have done with some of that. So, paying it forward. Nice. So, um, what I was really looking at was how 
Catholic theologians in the Dark Ages were rediscovering Aristotelian ideas, particularly metaphysics, ideas about the world, and how they used those to fit into their religion. Uh, how they, whether that was kind of to help improve God or whether it hindered religion. I think the conclusion I came to was a little bit like yours, which is basically that the two ideas, putting them together in this thing called the philosophy of religion is so syncretic, just mashing two things that really don't fit together. And I think that it damages the roots of both discourses, philosophy and religion, to stick them together. And I think you can see that from, uh, I guess, three things that I want to talk about. So uh, the writings of Aquinas and Aristotle, I think if you look at their work and their comments around their work, you can see that there were massive problems in the way that they tried to marry the two ideas. But I also think when you look at like modern atheism, if you see this as a complete mistake to stick these two ideas together, you suddenly start to see why we've inherited such bad ideas about religion and why all the debates aren't working and why... I don't know, have you ever heard of new atheism? I've heard of it, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah, on what it means. Like Richard Dawkins. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, so like, kind of slamming religion, saying that it's just stupid. And what's new about that, though? Uh, I don't know. Really, I guess I guess <laughs> it's it trying to be modern with a new atheist. It hadn't really been done, and I think I think there were like some benefits to come out of it and I do think I'm going to say that the, like, I think they talk a lot of bollocks and I don't think that new atheism makes the best sense it could but I'm not going to say that it's totally invaluable and I'm definitely not going to say that we should, shouldn't criticise religion because I think we should I think we, we should have open honest debate and I think all ideas need criticism I think that's what theology is it's sort of self-criticism and I think it's important that that criticism comes from people that believe the thing and people that don't believe the thing. I think we need insider and outsider perspectives. So I'm not saying that new atheists are a bunch of meanies. I'm saying that, well, I'll, I'll kind of get onto what I'm saying. But I, I, I think that their criticisms aren't working for a reason. And I think that their criticisms are misdirected. Um, the other guy I want to talk about, kind of the third thing I want to talk about is Kierkegaard, who I think is arguably the first religious philosopher. Have you read Kierkegaard? No. Isn't he, okay. like, impenetrable? Or is that someone else? Oh, as in hard to read? Yeah. Not as in... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he might have been. Who knows? Probably. Um, I'd say he's difficult to really get a sense of what he's actually talking about. I remember when I first read Kierkegaard, I was like, what the fuck is this? It's like... His, one of his uh, things is a eulogy to Abraham. Okay. He thinks like how Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son was like the best thing ever. And I remember reading that as a new atheist and going, what the fuck? But then about three weeks later, I was like, I better rethink my new atheism. So he thought the fact that Abraham would sacrifice his son was just sick and amazing. Yeah. Um, not because it made sense, but actually, and not in spite of it not making sense, but because it didn't make sense. Okay. By virtue of the absurd, he calls it. So yeah, we'll, we'll get onto that anyway. Okay. But I, I think that the, the main thing is just like, 
yeah, the difference between philosophy and religion. So I guess the first place to start is Aristotle. So as as you know, in the physics, Aristotle's argument for the proof of God, in, in inverted commas, um, is kind of a, it's more of like a pre-Newtonian worldview of the universe. And, mm. you know, if you're, if anyone's like really into science and they're listening, they might think, oh, well, it's a load of bollocks then. But there's reasons why we, we cover Aristotle and think he's fucking amazing. Because what he was really doing, is it's the first real example of someone trying to explain the universe through ideas like motion and change. So he sees that everything is affected by motion and change. And he's trying to explain the movement of the cosmos and how everything is inherently ordered and reasonable. And I guess his idea of the universe being reasonable might sound a bit strange, but one way to think about it is that he thinks it's explainable and that it follows rules, as opposed to it literally the universe being a reasonable entity. But it's not... From that, you could kind of construe, okay, so he's, but he's doing science. He's just calling it something else. He's just saying, oh, here's a, here's a law of the universe and calling it reason. It's not quite that, but that's maybe one way to think about it. So it's somewhere between uh, kind of the previous natural philosophy and modern science, somewhere between the two. It's a step after mythology. Um, so he's seeing objects acting upon one another and he thinks, well, everything seems to have a cause and that goes back. So there's a chain of causality. The movements and changes of the universe cause it like actuality of a potentiality. So everything has a potentiality. So uh, you got an example of one of those things? Like fucking, I don't know, there's like an acorn, I guess. That's, that's a... Um... An acorn has the potentiality to turn into a tree. Yeah. So that would be a potentiality being actualized. Um, it's a little bit like Plato's form of the good, which gives rise to things having their intelligibility. But Aristotle's like, he wants to be more rational about his reflection. He wants to actually observe the natural world. So he basically postulates this thing that starts the whole chain has to be pure actuality. It can't be a potentiality because then it would need something to act on it. So this thing is self-thinking. It can only think about itself. This is his idea of God. And it's basically just a little logical thing. Like a, well, importantly, it's the conclusion of his argument and not the, the premise, which is the difference with the Judeo-Christian God. One of the differences, one of the many differences. Um, but his first cause is a way of explaining why there isn't an infinite regress. And that's about it. If he could think more like the Christian God, if he could like cognitively deliberate, then he would need something to act upon it, basically. Well, it's just kind of an, an assumption that there must be something unmoved, right? There must be... It's kind of a jump, I guess. It is a bit of a jump, yeah. It's kind of like a, an ad hoc argument for why it isn't an infinite regress. Uh, there is something, by the way. There is the one thing that started it, started it all off, like the person pushing the first domino. Mm. But there isn't really a. There's no no logic there being a first thing. He just assumes that there must have been. Yeah, there's this question 
that looms over this whole thing. Because obviously Aristotle started rationalism, but rationalism today would kind of tell us, well, it would, it would, it would demand that we ask these questions like, well, why is this something rather than nothing at all? Why, mm-hmm. or can, can existence be, can it just be brute fact? Is a self-cause necessary being, like, does that make sense? How can, it, it's hard enough to think of a concept being necessary or self-caused, yet alone a being. But despite that, Aristotle's God of Philosophy was kind of a theory of rationalism, but also has some of the hallmarks of a Judeo-Christian God. And this is what makes it kind of really unique and interesting. And this is, this is the start of the philosophy of religion and explaining God through reasonable arguments is kind of where it begins classically. Yeah. So, uh, start with the kind of similarities. He's a bit like a normal God. In a sense, he's the highest possible good. Uh, well, he's more of a necessary concept, but, you know, there's kind of a similarity in that idea. He's similarly eternal, transcendent, immutable, you know, some of these buzzwords you can apply to him, but it's outside of the confines of any particular religion. It has nothing to do with belief or faith, and importantly, I think, behavior, like human behavior. This God cannot interact with the physical world. It's basically like a form of deism, mm. but without any real sense of worship. It's a calculative postulate of just logic, uh, kind of a piece of reasoning that he theorized and it's only really explainable or understandable within Aristotle's own worldview of physics. And it's just it's just there to like to explain the astronomical movement of the cosmos and the laws of nature and substance and all, all these kinds of things. Like I said, actuality, potentiality. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, it can't interact with anything. So it's it's thought thinking itself. The thinking of thinking, I think, is one of the quotes. Uh due to its kind of requisite nature of it being pure actuality. Like I said, nothing can act on it. And you might have heard terms like unmoved, mover. Well, he's an um, uncaring, uncaring girl. Yeah, exactly. He's a prick. <laughs> well, not, not exactly a prick, but like he's a, he's not a caregiver. He's not, um, he's not, he's not your dad. <laughs> yeah, no, he isn't your dad. That's actually a point of critical psychology. And I think that's like, one of the most important things about God from a from that kind of standpoint, uh, you know, it, it, it's normally like a parent figure or it's at least a coping mechanism about the afterlife. But this thing is so abstract. Heidegger actually says, uh, man can neither pray nor sacrifice to this God. He's not interactive. He's not a mediator. He can't contemplate. So he's not the God of scripture. It's nothing like the Christian God. Um, and I think I mentioned in one of the essays, like the, the even if he'd gone with the Platonic God, the Demiurge. Which I, have you ever read about the Demiurge? Enlighten me. It's like a a weird craftsman that it's a kind of an explanation of the order of the universe, but also why there are inconsistencies and why it's not perfect. But basically, the Demiurge is is like this mythological thing that. Uh, kind of answers why is there any harmony or symmetry at all. So he's a craftsman who had limited tools, but there's some ideas of morality, but it's still not like an interpersonal relational God. And uh, even when Neoplatonists tried to use it to like support Christian ideas like uh, creatio ex nihilo, uh, creation from nothing, it's kind of a misreading. 
of ancient Greek philosophy. So even if they'd gone with the Platonic God, basically pre-Judeo-Christian God, like God was not, the philosophical tradition doesn't really have scope to give you a God that you can pray to, basically. It's not there. It's uh, not a comforting God. No, it never is. It's all, And it's always the answer to a question. It's always like the conclusion of an argument or the, usually just an explanation of something. It's not, it's not a drive for behaving in a particular way, which I think separates it from all the other, well, well religions, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think we should, like, a historically look back and go, oh, Neoplatonists were fucking stupid. They didn't understand no, no, Greek, no. Greek philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, questions about faith make it difficult, yeah. It's, well, I think they're a doohead. <laughs> can't even fucking read Plato. <laughs> <laughs> Dickheads. God, they should have been smarter in the Dark Ages. They had lamps. <laughs> they didn't have glasses. When were glasses invented? When, when were they invented? Reading glasses. I don't know. Who, also, who came up with them? People had them in Japan. Because I'm assuming bottles were invented before glasses. This is this is a an assumption here. Like containers. Yeah. Right? Did you think they drank what was in it and then just looked through it and thought, this has helped me not be blind. Oh uh, Plotinus, is there any wine left? I don't know, have a look in the bottom. Oh fucking hell I can see. <laughs> I was a man this whole time. <laughs> so, uh Right. <laughs> yeah, have a look, have a look. Invented. 13th century. Really? Fuck. The first wearable glasses appeared in Italy. This seems like one of those things where there's like contesting. Each nation thinks they invented it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the Italians. Well, it's like the, the telephone thing, isn't it? Like everyone's like, oh, it's Alexander Graham Bell. But there's... A French or Italian guy who did it like a couple of weeks earlier. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's like a point of national pride. It's true. So Aquinas, have you read much Aquinas? Um, you said you were rusty. Yeah, I've read you know excerpts. Did you do Aquinas at A level or anything? Uh, yeah, but as with most A level, it's from textbook. So yeah. That's probably better for this, actually, because this is focusing mostly on that stuff you learn when it's like the teleological, cosmological arguments. Right. You know, because um, I think I think it was the fact that I'd studied that and then gone to university and, and actually taken a look at what Aquinas was saying and what later philosophers were saying, and then thinking, why the fuck did I learn this at all? This is literally one of the most pointless things in philosophy, the philosophy of religion. And I think to an extent, arguably it was, it was pointless for Aquinas as well. So yeah, the, the context for Aquinas discovering, well, reading Aristotle was the fact that it's the dark ages, complete desert of thought before and after. In ancient Greece, all the stuff went down and then later in the Enlightenment, all the thought was being done. So he occupied this space in between. And luckily, the Islamic world had literally just, as we alluded to last time, found a bunch of Aristotelian writing. So 
I think he was super interested in it, probably more than someone like Al Kindi was. I think he actually had a very, very deep respect for Aristotle, despite the fact that he thought he was a pagan heretic. So it was, it was from his point of view, it was less of a, a sell and more of a study. Yeah, I think he was genuinely interested in whether the, the relationship between reason and faith, basically. I think he, he, was, he was a lot more objective and empirical than people had been before. I know he didn't like Anselm's kind of theological argument, which is the main argument beforehand, which is the ontological argument. I don't think he liked his formulation of it, at least. I know he used via negativa as well, describing what God isn't, because he's like, oh, God's, God's unknowable. So we can only talk about him in terms of what he isn't. Um, do you know his five ways of proving God, which he kind of took from Aristotle? Um, go ahead. Well, they're basically formulations of, of the two things you probably learned if you did A-level. Teleological argument and cosmological argument. And basically, the, the first one is motion. Um, like we were saying about Aristotle, he's like, everything is in motion. Something must have started that motion. Then there's cause. Everything is caused. Something must have been the first cause. Sounds familiar. Yeah, literally. It's, it's literally just using Aristotle. Um, necessity. He's like, well, something has to be necessary because there are lots of things that are unnecessary, but something has to be necessary because right, it, can, yeah, it, can, yeah. it can all be unnecessary. It's like, okay, but what? what? Okay, yeah, keep going, yeah. Then uh, gradation or um, degrees. So lots of things are better than each other. Something has to be the best, I think is, is one way of saying it. And then the other one is order. And like I was saying about Aristotle's view of the ordered world, Aquinas also thinks the world is ordered. And he's very interested in how Aristotle saw the world because he is obviously using that thinking about how God ordered the world. The, the natural laws within the world, the natural law within people. And he thinks that reason is incredibly important for this reason when thinking about God and God's world. I'm convinced. <laughs> he, he's done it. I mean, they're not, they're not strong arguments. I'm not sure why they are given such a focus on curriculums because I, they, don't, they're not, they don't make sense. They're, they're, not, they're not all, they're not, proofs at all they're not irrefutable and i know they've been so there's obviously like the design argument um the universe seems designed even though it doesn't but <laughs> what are you on about of course it does that's been kind of evolved by people like william paley who say things like well if you found a watch in the desert you would assume that it had a designer the earth is a watch in a desert of nothing so you would assume mm -hmm. it has a designer but of course we have explanations for that now. We have fine-tuning over a, a long period of time. We have evolution by natural selection. We have kind of explanations that make a lot more sense. Yeah, because the argument kind of hinges on creation from nothing. Like, it, it was always going to be in this state instead of it has been built up to be in this state. You know what I mean? It's designed as it is and as it always has been. But now we've found evidence that, you know, there were dinosaurs. <laughs> it isn't as if everything was just made in perfect harmony with each other, mm. which is kind of the thing that these arguments hinge on. 
So as he's coming up with these arguments that I think are, are important to the development of philosophy, and they certainly give some food for thought, and I think they're good for getting kind of like uh, prospective students kind of interested in philosophy, but I don't think they're, they have any real substance that's useful to like people that have studied philosophy. I know, I know some philosophers sort of think about things like the ontological argument a little bit and go, oh, maybe that's, no, it's not, you know, but he starts to notice there's a difference between revelatory experiential nature of his own faith and the sort of calculative reasoning of Aristotle. He knows there are odds. And my favorite quote for sort of summing this up is he has this mystical experience later in his life. And some guy's like, get back to work. What are you doing? Uh, and he says, everything that I've written seems like straw in comparison to what's been revealed and shown to me. So that, to me, I think, exemplifies that there are two separate conversations going on. Even though he's what's known as a compatibilist uh, in terms of reason and faith, it's important to note that he thinks one is definitely better than the other. It's not like Al-Kindi where he thinks they're actually the same. He knows they're completely different, but he at least wants to show that they're not completely opposed. So one way he sort of tries to do this is he, whenever Aristotle's wrong, he's just like, well, you know, they were limited in their knowledge of their pagans. He just thinks Aristotle couldn't have known. He didn't have divine knowledge to help him out. Then he thinks that kind of normal knowledge, empirical knowledge about the world is subsidiary to divine knowledge, but you need both, which I think is, is a very interesting perspective, but it does show that he's, he's not quite a philosopher, but he's, he's sort of getting there. Yeah, I've got a quote actually about theology to just to sort of uh, exemplify what I mean about religious thinking. Um, its critical reflections are based on religious convictions and theology is responsible to an authority that initiates its thinking speaking and witnessing i think witnessing is an important word uh, as opposed to the free and open inquiries of philosophy so i think the philosophy of religion when you combine these two together it talks about faith in a much more abstract way in a way that almost doesn't seem to suit the people that are talking about it um so way earlier in history you had anselm's ontological argument which i mentioned and th this is like a logical proof of god but i'm a big fan of that argument are you? Actually, am because it's one of those ones where you're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense as a as an argument. It does if you agree with the premise. Yeah. Well, yeah, every every argument hinges on the you know the assumption that the premise is correct. Yes. But it's one of those where it is just so simple, but there's no kind of huge gap with every other argument that that you know proves, in quotes, the existence of God. The, the best part for me is when you say, oh, the perfect X is the one that must exist, right? If we replace God with ice cream, and you've got, imagine the best ice cream ever, right? The one that is real is better than the one that's imaginary. Yeah. A quality of perfection is the fact that it exists. If it, if it doesn't yeah. exist, it's not perfect. Yeah, I love that. I'm 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 happy with that. Yeah, I'm not. I just I'm not. What's what's wrong with that? Something that is perfect, surely. What does perfect mean? Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, 
none greater that, than can be imagined. That which nothing greater can be conceived, I think he says, yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. But the problem is, that is only applicable to God, because God's a very special kind of being to Anselm. So he doesn't think you can actually do that for ice cream, but he does think, because of what God is, very specifically, you can do that with God. But I don't know, I just think the concept is just like, what do you mean God? Like, explain. And that is, is not really that explanation. But I think the, the problem, the problem that's even deeper than any specifics of the argument is the fact that Proslogion, the, the book in which the ontological argument is uh, espoused, is a prayer. And I think that is probably the most telling thing. He never actually intended it to be viewed as a philosophical argument outside of the context of his faith. Objectively proving God kind of misses the point. If it's based on evidence, then it's not faith. This is what I mean about philosophy examining faith in a way that only the faithless could, even when it comes from people of faith. I think this speaks to an idea of there's little distinction in the medieval world between explaining the meaning of like a theological statement and giving an argument for it. So he's basically describing what the Christian already thinks. So faith is pre-existent. These are kind of post-faith exercises that explain something about the mechanisms of the universe. So it's an explanation given what they already believe. And I think believe is the wrong word as well, because I think we, when we talk about religion, we should be talking about feeling. And I actually think it, it's comparable to the way we talk about ethics. So I actually think that if we thought of religion as a form of ethics, we would probably be, be having more fruitful conversations today about it. So the, I think, I mean, I'm going to have to go and look up some met, more meta-ethics because I haven't done it in a while, but... I would say that there is something experiential, something that's not reducible to propositions about ethics, about our relationships to each other. And I think, I don't think it's unreasonable to, to be ethical, but I don't think it's entirely about reason. But I, I think they are separate conversations. Yeah, I think what Anselm's doing is, is kind of, I don't think he really distinguishes between the meaning of a theological proposition and giving an argument for it. He's just describing what the Christian already believes. And I don't, I think using philosophy to, to bolster faith is just really strange because it's like you're using an open conversation or what, what should be an open conversation for the ancient Greeks to reinforce a foregone conclusion that you've already decided upon. Mm. And I think we talked about this in the, in the previous podcast, but like ways of life, so the religious way of life will congeal into a proposition about the nature of the universe, say God exists as a proposition. But it's it's the consequence of, of having a religious experience or feeling religious as to why people say these things. It's only after the rituals and values are adopted that they're justified through propositions. So I think religious thinking is backwards in a sense, or at least backwards to somebody who's scientifically minded. But that's not a criticism of religion necessarily. Why do you think there is a need to, as you say, try and justify belief? Why do, why do you think there's a need? Because you've said, and I agree with you, that faith by its definition is a jump of, you know, it's a jump. You have to put your heart and soul into something that isn't provable for you to have faith in it, right? So why do you think there is, I don't know, the... Are they trying to convince others that don't have the faith? 
Who's the audience? That is a really good question. Um, Judaism, pagans, uh, because this is the thing, theoretical atheism literally didn't exist at this point. Like, you couldn't have gone up to St. Paul and said, oh, your proposition is is a flaw because you've made a logical fallacy. Do you think God could lift a stone that's too heavy for himself yeah. to lift? Mm-hmm. You, like, he would have just gone, what? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Cut his head off. Because what, <laughs> what they're talking about is like a way of life. So yeah. what I think these, because, but obviously like these feelings are not shared with other faiths. So I think it's really just, it's apologetics which was something that evolved out of early Christianity, which they were tools, intellectual tools, given to missionaries to go around and basically give, give kind of logical arguments or semi-logical arguments about things like the Trinity, just to go up to people of different faiths. So, I mean, the closest thing to like atheism at this point was something that happened centuries before, like Democritus, when he rejected myth. That's like the closest example to modern atheism. So really, these are, unbelief is a term that's basically uh, only really legitimately addressed to like uh, Jews and pagans, basically. Mm-hmm. That's, that's their target audience, I think. But I think this is really just an intellectual exercise. I think he just wants to be like, well, I believe it, and there's no, there's no way I won't. But what do I think about that? It's like, I know what I feel, but what do I think? Do you think it's also a case of like, what else can I do with my time? <laughs> like, because what else could they do? Like, read, pray, eat cheese, like, drink wine. Literally, he, he was he was quite a glutton. He used to fucking eat loads of shit and just ponder about absolute bollocks like this, which is great. I mean, fair play if there's nothing else to do. Well, I think obviously Aquinas. Aquinas is one of the the biggest writers ever. Like his book, Summa Theologica, was literally just like a summary of everything. And he talked about ethics. He talked about natural law. He talked about, um, he was, in, he was actively involved. He was like the most prominent intellectual of his, of his time and period and place. And he, you know, he talked about theories about war, which hadn't really been substantially done before um, properly. You know, I, I think he did a lot, but. So he was know. like uh, the Jordan Peterson of his day. <laughs> yeah I'll go with that everyone looked up to him do you look up to Jordan Peterson I was considering saying yes but no <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was like, is it worth the joke I don't know I like some of his lectures uh, did you hear I saw uh, I saw on Twitter because you know he's a, he's a lecturer at the University of is it Toronto mm-hmm. uh, it was another lecturer who was talking on Twitter about him he was saying all he knew of him was that people didn't like him and students would glue his office door shut regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is genius. Like he's I don't know. Yeah. World famous. And even the, the lecturers at his own university can't even be bothered to know who he is. That's quite funny. Glue his yeah. door shut. <laughs> One of the most interesting things about religious people in the medieval period kind of dragging up the reason and logic of aristotle and other thinkers is that it kind of created the situation where western philosophy is characterized by an anxiety about emotion sees emotion as contrary to reason uh emotional people you know take the path of least resistance they give in to the dark side they 
yeah, it's all very fucking Star Warsy, and it's this idea that reasonable people uh, can rein in those desires and think objectively. Uh, I mean, there's a question: is is emotion the driver itself, or is is it an expression of a drive? Um, but despite the fact that they love reason so much, because of what they believe, the authority ultimately has to lie with faith. Yeah. So even though there were good reasons that kind of linked in with their pre-existing faith, why they took to reason so magnetically, that wasn't always the case. Before Aquinas, you had people like Tertullian, who would say shit like, reason is unreliable when it comes to truth. Like, imagine, imagine that context like of, of thought. Reason is a load of bollocks. Just string. <laughs> so... I think that's partly why Aquinas is so stuck in putting divine truth on a pedestal and saying, uh, basically, whenever there's something contradictory that uh, Aristotle was just wrong and limited, potentially. Um, So he, he thinks there are like incomplete truths in reason. He says, faith and eternal salvation exceeds that kind of truth. Faith is better, basically. Can I just say something about Arkindi as well? Yeah, go for it. This kind of, this argument between faith and reasoning was something that Arkindi tackled as well, but in terms of philosophers versus prophets. So he addressed the the different types of knowledge that come from prophets and and those who, in his words, um, kind of laboriously work out the truths that prophets come by like easily without any effort. Yeah. So from his perspective, although they are both searching for the same knowledge, which is incredibly important for his argument that he places prophets above philosophers purely because of their ability to understand and translate these truths in much more accessible terms. So when prophets, for example, speak of God in parables, he places that above any form of reasoning. And I think it's just interesting, this kind of, his perspective was, well, how can I please the two sides of it? It's weird, the later people after Al-Kindi, they took on Plato. Like you said, um, why don't people take on Plato? And I think I remember reading, there was one guy who literally did think, yeah, Plato's the bee's knees. And then he, some of the concepts we talked about last time, like uh, eternity and the oneness of God, he literally just went, yeah, that's all bollocks. And it just, it, everything just like collapsed. Nothing made sense anymore. So like I think Al-Kindi is, and Aquinas are kind of, even though they, they, they have these kind of differences in where they view faith and reason, I think it's it's about as far as you can stretch the two. I think it is about as far as you can stick the two together until you get to Kierkegaard but yeah that's all I wanted to say there's an interesting parallel between the yeah. two that they were discussing faith and reason and you know holding up the merits of the two trying to come up with kind of a semblance of harmony but you know yeah we've already said that from our perspective at least there is no full kind of harmony between yeah theology and philosophy a word to um 
Eastern religion as well, because um, we always fucking forget Eastern religion because we're uneducated and uncultured and we're horrible Westerners. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I do think it's it's worth thinking about this in the context of Hinduism as well. Um, and uh, the, 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 all the Vedic religions of uh, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism. So Socrates is often compared to the, uh, the Buddha. And we know that Socrates didn't like science, didn't like those kind of big questions about the universe. He was more concerned about a way of life. And I think that's probably true of the Buddha as well. Um, I think it's true of how most Hindus think. I think we, we think about Hinduism as like, oh, it's the belief in like lots of gods. It's the belief in like the oneness of the universe. But those concepts only really matter insofar as they influence behavior. Like they, they are as much abstract as they are social and you know you think of something like yoga that's like an, that's a doing thing that's like it's a way to engage with existential anxiety um and it's connected to these broader ideas like the atman and so the atman is the soul but yoga is, is a way to like engage with those ideas in a way that is it's, it's like a craft as much as it is a thought exercise and i think because we've just been in the West, we've just had like all this years and years of apologetics, years and years of centuries of, of arguments about is, is there proof for God? We've sort of forgotten that all religions are ways of life first and foremost and abstract reasoning really plays very little part in the way that religions are formed and maintained. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that explains all of these problems. So while philosophy and religion deal in the same questions, ultimately they offer fundamentally different answers and use different methods to get to those answers. Bertrand Russell actually said about Aquinas, before he begins to philosophize, he already knows the truth. It is declared in the Catholic faith. So Russell actually says, I can't therefore feel that he deserves to be put on a level with the best philosophers of either Greece or of modern times. Because what he's basically saying is they're two different things. Is it Kierkegaard time? Yeah, I think, I think it's, this is leading on to Kierkegaard. So Kierkegaard's sort of the first existentialist. He's this moody, poetic guy in a big coat. Handsome as well. Yeah, handsome Danish man. that... Uh... There's the one kind of depiction of Kierkegaard as like this young. Yeah, like the pencil drawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll stick a picture of that in the notes. But he's not one to talk about propositions and things. So existentialism doesn't really quite start yet. I don't know. It, it depends who you ask. I think existentialism is kind of, it's a, it's a product of philosophy of the modern world, but it has its roots in ancient Greece. And I think the same with continental philosophy, which is the other side. So analytic philosophy is kind of what we're talking about with the philosophy of religion and logical arguments and the enlightenment and science. Uh, and then I think there's another side to philosophy, the continental side, that really kind of starts around World War II. And Kierkegaard is writing a little bit before then. So he's writing in the previous century. So he kind of gives rise to some of these things that like, people like Nietzsche are going to talk about. So Kierkegaard's one of the first people to sort of kick this off. Basically, he's just looking at the Christian world 
And he's looking at the what the Enlightenment, the discovery of science, has has done, and he's like, religion's fucked. Like, am I going mad? No one's actually religious. Everyone thinks they are. So it's, it's very similar to what Nietzsche was saying later on when he says God is dead. Um, he's 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 a guy who struggles with his Christianity. Um, and I think he's one of the only people to really objectively look at his own Christianity, to go through the looking glass and go, no, it's bollocks. And I know it's bollocks, but I need to commit to it for various reasons. And I don't think any, there's, I don't know, I just get the sense of reading him that he's just like, he's the only guy that actually sort of knows, he objectively looks at Christianity. He's the only religious person who is also objective completely about what they believe because of the way he says it's like we said at the start it's absurd so he he's as an existentialist he sees a loss of meaning in the world and he's trying to address that all this bollocks about the void and anxiety and one of my favorite quotes from him is it is quite true what philosophy says that life must be understood backwards but then one forgets the other principle that it must be lived forward so i think that almost speaks to that idea of religion being a a sort of a way of ethics, a way of life, first and foremost. That's a good quote. Yeah. He thinks that faith has become an abstract propositional notion because of the Enlightenment, because of the the, the language that we inherited. Um, and he's, I don't think he's necessarily saying that the Enlightenment was a mistake or anything. He's just saying that because we started viewing the world in very abstract terms, we've misunderstood religion and we we just like forgot how to talk about it. Yeah, like I said, I I think he's the only Christian to really understand faith for what it is, which is absurd. So he almost agrees with atheists, but then throws his lot in with religion anyway. So I remember reading this, I was like, I was I was genuinely upset. <laughs> yeah, it, the eulogy of Abraham, and just he actually says it's beyond the scope of justification what Abraham does. But I think it's because he realizes the implications of his faith, realizes that they can't be intellectually defended, like theologians have tried to. So I think what this is called is uh, fideism. I don't know quite how to say it. Or he's, he's a fideist or a fideist. He thinks that religious faith doesn't need rational justification or require the support of rational arguments because faith is characterized by a lack of reason. It's a sentiment. And not a proposition or a hypothesis. He thinks obviously you can you can be re- you can be reasonable, but then when it as soon as it contradicts your faith, which is a feeling sentiment. So th- this is why I think new atheists miss the mark because, and this this should this should sort of make a few atheists possibly unsettled if they really hate religion because, like, you can't reason with faith. You it's a sentiment and there's. There's no way you can dislodge that apart from offering an alternative sentiment. So that, this is why nobody's ever been convinced by one of these bollocks arguments about ontology or the universe being designed. That's never convinced anyone. If it has, it's because they wanted to be convinced. Because we're talking about sentiments and not propositions. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm just reading on it. I think it's interesting that is is embrace the absurdity of it, but go for it anyway. I think is is interesting that he's applied like the core of is that is that existentialism or is that it's it's kind of an early form of existentialism. 
it, it's the it's the precursings of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he that he he's applying this to because this is the first time I've really heard about this aspect of him. I've heard about his you know relationship to uh, Nietzsche. When I say relationship, I mean like similarities that didn't really ever come in contact. Yeah, prices of faith and a recognition of meaning in the world. I think it characterizes what he's thinking. And yeah, I, I think I think that was really kind of novel at the time in a way that, and I think I think people didn't really cotton on to it for a long time. But yeah, I, I think he's, he's sort of recognizing that the narratives and the um, comfort has gone and the easy answers have sort of gone. And um, I think that's why he's a, a fideist. But I also think he's one of the first people to see the Enlightenment uh, in the context of its spiritual implications. The fact that it, because yeah, no one really thought, oh, yeah, reason, science, how can these be bad things? Which they're not bad things, but they do leave a gap. And I think he was one of the first people to acknowledge the gap. And I think that's probably a large part of why he thinks as he does or feels as he does. So what was the, um, the reception of this? Like, how was he? Do you know? I'm not sure he was terribly popular. Can't imagine, size. Even if he was devilishly handsome. <laughs> well, he, he was influential, but I'm just wondering what the uh, reception was at the time. Anyone even bother to read it? I think he's been overshadowed by some of the people who come later, Nietzsche, mm. especially. Mm. I think a lot of Christians felt threatened by what he was saying, even though he's. I don't know, though. If, if, if I had the belief, if I were a Christian, I don't think that's anything to. He's, I, I think he's, he's as much a poster boy of atheism as he is for. Christianity, because he highlights some of the problems. I think it, it, it is sort of a criticism of modern faith. He's like, stop trying to be reasonable. Stop trying to argue with these people from the Enlightenment. You can't. It, yeah. Because what we're doing is, is, is unreasonable. And I don't think a lot of people wanted to hear that. I also don't think people wanted to hear that, how dare you say I'm not fully serious in my faith, like Abraham. It's like, well, you're not, are you? To be honest. But at the You've same time, he's not like dismissing. He's, he's, he's not saying your faith isn't you know, worth having. No, we can't prove. Yeah, well, it means lots of different things. So on the one hand, it means that religious people, because their stuff is based in sentiment, they can't give objective arguments for what they believe. So that should comfort the uh, very vibrant atheist. That, sh that should kind of show you that, well, okay, religious people actually can't uh, demand things of other people. But it also means that atheists should stop shouting about Noah's Ark because that's a kind of literalism that even religious people don't have for the most part. I mean, creationism is different, but obviously there are religious people that do think in terms of propositions, but I yeah, don't yeah. think that's the generally the root of religion. I think generally it's this kind of absurd, in spite of the facts kind of thing. And I think understanding that is really the way to transcend these increasingly tired, tiring debates about uh you know god's existence because they don't have any practical effect and to be honest they've they've stagnated the the more fruitful conversations between religious people and non-religious people but they've also just kind of they've really fucked up debate they've made everything more divisive mm. 
you know, it's this whole talking past each other. And I'm talking about the Dawkins phenomena. Now, I think that Dawkins got a lot of stuff right and he got the conversation onto the table, but then didn't do very much with it. You know, I, I think you need that uh, book by Richard Dawkins is probably, you know, sat on a shelf somewhere. Um, but I don't think that's the scope of atheism. I think that's like a very shallow version of atheism. Um, and I don't think it fully understands this loss of meaning that Kierkegaard identified, that that, that that gap needs to be filled. And I also think it it thinks that religion is just a proposition that that is illogical or incorrect. It's like that bloody Richard Dawkins documentary where it's like, it literally opens with, these people are deluded. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. look, it's like looking at um, Lords, you know, the, the big procession to, to see miracles and stuff. It's like, well, even if you're right, who are you convincing with that tone? Yeah, I know. He's just, I think the one thing holding him back in my eyes is how smug of a get he is. He just, he just walks around like a ponce, just like, <laughs> look at all these religious people. <laughs> I'm like, that's the he's just unlikable. Speaking of someone who is autistic, I think he's a massive autist. I think he's just gone like, well, like doesn't compute, and I think he's just gone like these, like it has to be this, and he's just like confused at, the, at what religious people are saying and doing because he thinks they're Aristotelian, and as a result, the rhetoric becomes increasingly barbed and divisive. I think like a lot of people latched onto it. I think that was part of the context of what was happening in the world at the time. But um, I don't know. I think we need loud voices, but we eventually need quiet voices to come along and with more nuance and more uh, appreciation of, of history. And I, I think a lot of atheists need to do is know their enemy because they base their life on these abstract concepts about the negation of God. And it's like, well, Religious people don't base their lives on these abstract concepts. The abstract concepts are a result of them basing their lives on something else, something they feel. But you think that the thinking is the, the main part of what they do. So, yeah, it, it, it's, all, it's all very strange. Um, but yeah, they, I think they think faith is, is this Aristotelian thing as a result of what Aquinas did all those centuries ago. So they try and undo faith. They try and unprove God, which is a fucking strange thing to be doing. Sells books. Yeah, it does. It's not a bad book. It's just like, it's just not, it's like, yeah, again, the, the, if you agree with that premise, of course it is. It's a walk in a park. But if it's that obvious, why doesn't it work? If, if that's the nature of religion, of religiosity, then religion would have ended years ago because these, are, these arguments are so obvious. It's like, it's so obvious that religion's not true. Like, objectively that's because it's not an objective phenomenon it's not about cognition or argumentation it never has been it, it only was for Aquinas for a bit and then he was like oh actually it's what well, everything I did was straw so yeah that's really the I don't know it's like shouting about Noah's Ark not being literal it's like do you not think that how thick do you think these people are because it's like <laughs> I mean well some of them. Yes. <laughs> when, we're talking about, when we're talking about creationism, often we are talking about, because that is a literalism. That is like a, the, the propositions come before. So, I mean, I don't live in America or 
uh, a particularly religious country, despite uh, the setup of the country. Like most people here aren't actually religious, or they're not, and they're definitely not religious in any serious way. So I don't know. This is maybe this is very. Uh, uh, you know, I do I do know a lot of religious people. I do talk to a lot of religious people. I had to for my degree. Like had some really enlightening conversations, but maybe I don't know the full picture of religion because maybe maybe there is an insistence on literalism in lots of other places. But I do think that is secondary to experience. And I think if we focused on experience, ethics, the more subjective nature of faith, because you shout, you shout about Noah's Ark to people and it doesn't work. And it's like, these people aren't like naturally more stupid. Like it, it, it's obvious and it is obvious that Noah's Ark is a stupid concept. It's, it, of course, it's not literal. I don't know, maybe it's to do with like the political climate or something, but like that that should work, but it doesn't work. And I think there's very good reasons why why that is. Um and I think this is this is a large part of that reason at least, the nature of religion. Um I, I think I think maybe because of the alignment, religious people feel that like they have to sort of shout back with the same kind of insistence on literalism of their own text. Mm. I'm not sure. Well it's because kind of just faith is kind of ineffable, really, isn't it? If you can't really explain, if you can't prove the things that you believe in, how can you, you know, how can you defend faith? You know what I mean? Like, what what is there to defend if not the things that you are have that you do have faith in? So I'm trying to say the. I know it's getting jumbled, but I suppose people try and defend their faith with texts because faith in itself isn't like, I don't know, a good enough argument for a lot of people. So if, if I turned to Rich Dawkins and was like, well, I know it's a leap of faith, but I have the faith. And he would be like, well, if you can't prove it. Then why have the faith? You know what I mean? Yes. So for a lot of people, you have to go beyond just, you know, saying that you have a belief in something by trying to substantiate what you have a belief in. Yeah, because otherwise it's like, I'm in love with this person. Like, oh, well, why? I, I, you know, and you should be too. It's like, well, why? It's like, and you, there is no why to love. It's like, it, it just is. I mean, there, obviously there is like, there are like materialistic explanations. There are chemicals, but like in terms of like, demonstrating it all you can give someone is like poetry expressions of how you feel because it is just feeling so the the easier alternative well it's not easy but the the more the clear alternative is to try and prove the one that gets framed and the one that gets roped into is yeah yeah is trying to prove rather than just you know explaining that you do have a faith but i think i think what this shows is that not only are atheists kind of silly for for having a go at religious people, religious people are definitely silly for trying to shove their faith onto other people because it is a relationship. It's a sentiment with an idea of God, a feeling of God, nothing more. If you can't demonstrate it, yeah, but you shouldn't demonstrate it because it, it can't be and it shouldn't be because that is the nature of religion. So it, that, that was one bit of solace I eventually took from I don't know. As an atheist, it was it was quite difficult for me to like listen to Kierkegaard, and then 
don't know because because I probably did have that view a long time ago where I was like, "This is bollocks." I can't like because because I just saw it as like propositions about the world, and one was wrong because mm. it had no evidence for it, and it never yeah, has yeah. done, and and one was just like common sense. But I I I think from what you've told me about Kierkegaard's argument, it's quite comforting. It's like the whole an acceptance of like there is no like real meaning behind this thing but we do it anyway because you know it's like the the whole beyond good and evil thing I know I'm bringing in Nietzsche again but the whole point of that book is to argue that yeah there is no meaning like there's no patterns there's no whatever but instead of having a value judgment on that, just accept it and get on with it. And I always, I always, even from the, like the most hellish kind of realization that there is no point to anything, there is also the, hey, there is no point to anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's once you learn to find comfort in that fact, it's, yeah, it's comforting. So I, th- so I think Kierkegaard's argument that Faith can't be proved, so why bother? Like, just be happy in your faith. Be happy that you can believe in something. I don't know, it's not as in time pessimistic. He did think it was very difficult because of the Enlightenment. Uh, I think he obviously saw that it was becoming much much more difficult to, to believe in God. So I think that is part of why he thought what he did. is like, you've got to throw yourself into it. Because if you don't, you won't have faith. The only type of faith is... Because there's so many things out there trying to disprove it. But he thought that you needed faith, really, to navigate an empty world. Though his answer was very different, that's kind of what... Nietzsche said the opposite. Nietzsche said, you don't need faith to do that. Well, the, the answer is different, but they're the kind of the same theme of acceptance yeah. that runs through both of them. Yeah, that's why I think they're both existentialists. And that's why I think he truly is a Christian philosopher. I don't think he's the only Christian philosopher, but I do think he's like one of very few to 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 genuinely be not just an apologist, but to be somebody who because he because it like doubt is like the biggest characteristic of what he does. It's like it's like Socrates. It's like he's he's so doubtful. And it's like, how can you be religious and doubt at the same time? But somehow he does it. Well, ask all Catholics. Because, mm. you know, battles with doubt are part of the whole process, I guess. Yeah. And he, and he frames it in a context that's understandable to secular people. It doesn't just rely on this sentiment. He's like, no, I'm going well, to talk a lot about that sentiment, but I'm going to kind of try and frame it and explain it in ways that people without it could maybe understand. And because I, I, I never had before when I, kind of listen to religious people. Yeah, I I always find it like super interesting when I was like having a beer with religious housemates and stuff, but it's just like, there's something fundamental here that I can't quite tap into. There's like... There's a switch that you can't turn on. Yeah, yeah. That Kierkegaard was like the switch. Just like, all right, okay, I I think I understand where most of the people I've been talking to have been coming from. Yeah. Should Should we leave it there? Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, unless you had anything else to say. No. Cool. That was alright.